As Sarah just indicated, children are well known for having simple yet profound observations. One of my kids, I confess I can't remember which one, often watched the sky as we drove from place to place and articulated a deep desire to see the beginning and end of a rainstorm. After learning that weather covers a certain area and understanding that it could be sunny in one place while pouring down in another, there was a fascination with seeing that line in plain sight. And I suppose it makes sense. As children, there are so many boundaries to learn about and understand. Everything from our own bodies to geopolitical territories. We learn to share our toys with others, or not. We are taught about the autonomy of our own flesh and bone. We find out that some neighbors don't like us walking on their grass. And we begin to see how wars are often just the result of national leaders who did not learn how to share their toys with others. As we grow, we learn about self-differentiation and we can begin to see ourselves as separate from others. And I don't know at which point exactly in our process of seeing ourselves as separate from the selves of others that we develop the need to draw a line between ourselves and the selves of others. But I know it can happen relatively early. Now, sometimes that line is one of healthy boundaries, but fairly often it is a line of judgment or competition. As my favorite musician Bob Dylan penned so beautifully in his anthem, The Times They Are a Changin', the line it is drawn. The lines between us aren't inherent or automatic, but drawn by human hands. Our passage today is a startling example of a way in which we can so easily draw a line between ourselves and others. The ease with which we can divide ourselves from other humans. Perhaps the most well-known sentence from this text is, I give you thanks, O God, that I'm not like others. It's the kind of statement that often brings laughter or at least a guffaw because it is so transparently misguided. After all, we know from the time that we are quite young that it is arrogant to think ourselves better than others. As Christians, we are taught early that religious faith is an inclusive team sport. And just eight chapters before the one we read from today, Jesus shared the greatest commandment 
in which we are reminded that our call is to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we have given our Bibles even a cursory glance, there can be absolutely no confusion about our obligation to one another. Interestingly, we know even before Jesus' words in this text what the takeaway for us should be. It's almost like a throwaway line that we can easily skip over to jump into the more dramatic prayer of the Pharisee, but it's right there. This truth, so centrally important to our human and Christian lives, is right there in the beginning of the passage, hidden in plain sight. The writer of the gospel, according to Luke, is setting up Jesus' words about the Pharisee and the tax collector in one sentence saying, Jesus spoke this parable addressed to those who believed in their own self-righteousness while holding everyone else in contempt. And there it is. In that simple sentence, the straw man set up for us to tear to shreds. How can we believe in our own self-righteousness while holding anyone else in contempt? How can we hold others in contempt and not also hold ourselves in contempt? The greatest commandment makes it plain that my love for you is forever connected to my love for myself. As soon as I draw a line between us, the sacred equation no longer works. Jesus set up this scenario with great intention. As is often the case, the Pharisee represents the rigid piety of those who too often went through the motions of faith without clinging to the message and marrow of faith. The Pharisee is a stand-in for any person who allows his or her own sense of religious arrogance to get in the way of loving kindness towards God and neighbor. Similarly, the tax collector is a familiar stand-in for the every person, a flawed human whose job puts them in a position to enrich themselves and represent empire, but also simultaneously whose humility and faithfulness puts them in a position to break their hearts open for God and neighbor. There is absolutely zero confusion about which side we should hope to be on, of course. Flawed and faithful like the tax collector is far better than a stiff-necked Pharisee who likes a mirror more than a loving view of the surrounding world. As theologian Richard Rohr has said about this text, Jesus' good news is that God's choice is always, always for the excluded one. I have no idea if the timing is intentional, but it seems appropriate that we are confronted with this text in the lectionary now, 
considering the division between those who believed in their own self-righteousness while holding everyone else in contempt just a few weeks before election day, when it seems we are constantly dividing ourselves into camps with every commercial. And the reasons for choosing our candidates and policies are not unimportant. There are real issues on the line and real people behind those issues. And as Cornell West has said, justice is what love looks like in public. Our beliefs and policies, they represent and impact people. And the most vulnerable are always impacted most dramatically. And in full transparency, I have a few election signs on my front lawn. And you can probably guess which end of the political spectrum they represent. But while it may be somewhat complex to do, I have to imagine that while we can see the issues and candidates in different ways, and can see different spheres of influence at work, and can most assuredly have heated conversations about why we think our side of an issue is right, it is my fervent hope that we can also resist the urge to draw a line between our own humanity and the worth of other humans. No matter how differently we may see the world, it seems imperative that we make the choice not to relegate any humans to a place of contempt. Because those people we write off or disregard or consider on the wrong side of the issues are every bit as created in the image of God as are we. And if we hold them in contempt, that's where we hold ourselves to. I find it fascinating that this text is all about the lines we draw between ourselves and others, and that it begins not in the marketplace or in some communal setting, but in the individual prayers of two very different people. The text tells us that two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector, went up to the temple to pray. Prayer a time in which to commune fully, transparently, and authentically with God. A time to unburden ourselves and listen carefully to the whisper of the Spirit. A time to humble ourselves with no need to put on airs for the God who already knows and loves us exactly as we are. It seems likely that according to the laws and culture of the time, the Pharisee and the tax collector would have engaged in a ritual washing before entering the temple, symbolically cleansing themselves before facing God, also an action of deep humility and respect. It makes me wonder if the Pharisee saw the whole enterprise as one of going through the motions one in which the state of his heart didn't really matter much. 
when in fact it seems that our humble hearts are the only essential requirement for prayer. I have often wondered if the reason we sometimes kneel when praying is the weight of our own flawed human selves falling down in adoration for a loving God who knows our hearts and minds and loves us anyway. And the weight of our flawed human selves can be a lot. I see myself and the Pharisee in this story more easily than almost any other place in Scripture. Sure, I know better than to pray aloud, thanking God that I am not like others. But you better believe that kind of sentiment makes its way into my heart and mind, despite my significant efforts to keep it at bay. The judgments that creep so easily through the cracks rise up so fast, and it takes enormous intention for me to hold those thoughts up, put them in the interrogating light of love, and tell them they are not welcome in my mind. They will find no home in my heart. I have to be conscious to nurture humility and let go of arrogance. Looking at human history, I don't think I'm alone. Every war that has been waged has been over a line constructed by humans, either an actual border or an invisible moral one. Slavery was invented by humans who placed other humans apart, on the other side of a line from themselves, because of wealth or class or, in the case of America, skin color. And the transatlantic slave trade led directly to the Burwood Wall, being built by a real estate de developer in 1941, across Eight Mile in Detroit, to concretely draw a line between a black neighborhood and a white one. And it still stands today like a festering wound of division and fear left behind intentionally to remind us of the human sin of white supremacy, lest we forget. These divisions exist all around the world between different religious traditions to say nothing of Northern Ireland and countless other places between Protestants and Catholics, followers of the very same Christ. Over and over again, we draw lines to keep ourselves inside and safe, leaving those on the other side of the line as other. As Bob Boisture, president of the Fetzer Institute, puts it, what if we assumed the best of each other? We would assume the best about each other and not the worst. We would be mindful of our tribal instincts and tribal thinking and work hard to overcome them. We would acknowledge the limitations of our own knowledge, wisdom, and life experience and be genuinely open, indeed eager, to have our minds and hearts changed by what we learn from each other. Even more radically, we would begin with a deep sense of shared humanity, 
a genuine desire to connect, and real commitment to each other's flourishing. Where we have wronged each other, we would forthrightly admit it, ask forgiveness, and make amends. Where we have been wronged, our plea for justice would be grounded in love and hope rather than enmity and fear. We would seek and find the common ground on which to build a flourishing world. Love, in a word, would change everything and make everything possible. As the Dylan song says, the line, it is drawn. It wasn't built that way, wasn't designed that way or set in stone. It certainly wasn't ordained as such by the loving God in whom we live and move and have our being. The lines have been drawn, and if they have been drawn, that is good news. Because we, my friends, hold the pencils in our very own hands. What is this? A line, right? A straight line capable of all kinds of wonderful things. But often in the minds of humans, it is used to divide us, to keep some in and some out, to take our collective God-given humanity and sow division. Now what is this? But it's a line, right? Not just any old line, but one continuous line that is shaped in such a way to create a symbol that we call a heart. A heart representing love. And the key to love is that when it comes from God, the line gets drawn around all of us. No exceptions. We cannot draw out what God has already drawn in with indelible ink, with divine love that will not be thwarted, however hard we try. The line, it is drawn. Let us think about that with every step we take, every word we say, and every interaction we undertake so that our prayers and actions may be ones of God's radical love, embodied by the Jesus we follow. Amen.